in Genesis it says that God will order out a chaos which is just as well in this fellowship, isn't it? I was trying to think of that the other day. Yeah. Order out a chaos. Do you think I could put that into words? No. Let's just pray once more because it helps me if I can pray as well just before we turn to the scriptures. Father, you speak. You're alive like us you exist and you're not silent you're not done and father i just pray that tonight by your holy spirit we will know that we have heard your word we just pray lord that that you'll bless us and that tonight we'll understand more about you that we'll understand more about jesus father just be with me as i speak and be with all of us as we Lord, we know that we're totally dependent upon you. Lord, anything we do is is no good. So, Father, (coughs) through Jesus, be for us what we can't be for ourselves. Do for us what we can't be for ourselves. Oh, Father, just bless us. Send your spirit to us tonight, we pray as our teacher. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I just bring the table a little bit nearer so yeah. we've got the blessing of the... <coughs> okay. Just want to read you two or three verses from the Bible. There's no need to follow them and you'll get the gist of what we're going to be thinking about tonight. In John 16 verse 33, Jesus said this, In the world you have tribulation and in Matthew 13 Jesus spoke a parable of the sower and four different kinds of seeds and each seed represents a particular person and their response to the word of God and the second seed fell away it's a picture of someone who got converted but they fell away and Jesus said it was when tribulation or persecution (laughs) arises The thing to know, not if, but when. And in Acts 14 verse 22, the early Christians when they preached said this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, the thing that all those verses have in common is tribulation. And when you read through the scriptures, (coughs) you find that Jesus' way of going about things was very different than ours today. If you go to evangelistic things, we often tend to have a man up front preaching the gospel and that's fine. But we tend to use every possible way to make it easy for someone to become a Christian. We assure people it's simply a question of putting your hand up and then you're a Christian and that's it. Couldn't be easier. Now, if you read in the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus did not do that. And in his preaching, Jesus would make it as hard as he possibly could for people to become a Christian. And what he told them very, very clearly was that if they started to follow him, they were going to hit difficulties and problems and pressure. He wanted people to know exactly what they were letting themselves in for if they said, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus made it very, very clear 
that amongst all the wonderful things that he's promised us, salvation, healing, power, miracles, all these things are ours because Jesus has promised them. But also, one of the things that Jesus has promised his people is tribulation. It is a dead cert that if we follow the Lord, tribulation will come our way. And what I want us to do is to understand precisely what the Bible means when it says that we will go through tribulation. So the first thing to do is, what exactly does the word tribulation mean? And the dictionaries render it thus. Severe suffering or trial. And the word comes from a Latin word which means to press or to oppress. And there's a connection between that. When someone says, I feel oppressed, they're, they're feeling pushed down. Also, in the Latin, it's connected to the same word that we get a threshing sledge from. You know the wheat and the chaff? You beat it up and all the wheat stays and the chaff flies away. A threshing sledge. It's the same word. And in English, thresh, in fact, equals the same as thrash. So when we talk about tribulation, we are literally, the word means one way or the other, a good thrashing. And that this is what Jesus has said is going to happen to us, along with all the other things. But tribulation will happen as well. But even more, when James writes, in James 5 verse 2, he says this. He says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. So what I want to do tonight is to ask two questions. Therefore, why is it that we must go through a tribulation such as Jesus has promised us? And secondly, why on earth should we be glad about it? Because the teaching of the Bible is be glad about it. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. And in fact, in the Good News Version, that verse in James says, welcome them as friends. So why, why on earth should we meet them as friends? And what I want to do is to look at three scriptures in the Bible. Each will tell us something about tribulation and why we go through it. Now, first of all, if you find Exodus chapter 1. <coughs> In fact, I'll read it to you to save you trying to find it. And it's this. This is said at a particular time. You'll remember that Joseph was made number two in Egypt. And as a result of that, God's people, the Israelites, were given food when otherwise they'd have starved. And the Israelites were welcomed in Egypt by Pharaoh because God gave them favour in his sight. But now we're moving along two or three hundred years, and we've got a different Pharaoh, and all the blessings that God gave to Egypt through the <coughs> Jews is now a memory in the past. And we read this, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war befall us, they join our foes and fight against us, and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities. 
But the more they were oppressed, tribulation, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. <coughs> and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So what you've got here is because the Jews were oppressed, there was an attempt by Pharaoh to destroy them because he thought if they get stronger than us they're an internal security risk we've got to deal with the Jews so he began to oppress them to treat them really badly now then the Jews have always strongly believed in marriage quite rightly too and what happened was that if you're married and have a wife and if you go through the kind of burdens that these people were going through their lives were tortuous. Obviously, the more oppressed you get, the more likely you are to find security and pleasure in lovemaking because you're married. And the result of that was more little baby Jews. So the more Pharaoh oppressed the Jews, the more they would make love at night because it was the only time their taskmasters weren't there and the more the women would give birth to little Jews so the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied now in the scriptures marriage in the New Testament is a picture of Jesus and his church his people and in fact when a man and woman make love and become one flesh it's a picture of the oneness that we have with Jesus as his people and what begins to emerge is this that as we follow the Lord it's the difficulties that will drive us to him more than easy times one of the prophets of the Old Testament a guy called um, Amos said this he says woe to those who are at ease in Zion now the thing is that Jesus hasn't called us to live a possible life he has called us to live impossible lives which means that we cannot do it which means that Jesus must do it through us so therefore we have to be brought into a total dependence upon Jesus rather than upon ourselves and the whole truth of the gospel <coughs> is this Jesus living his life through us now Christians say amen we know the theory we have our Bible but it's one thing to believe that in theory and it's another thing to do it in practice because Christian one may be but nevertheless we tend to instinctively do things for the Lord having got converted we kind of present ourselves to him and say right Lord you've got me now lucky you I'm going to do this, that and the other for you. And we instinctively do things in our own strength because after all, that's the only strength we've had since we were babies, before we were Christians. And it doesn't come naturally to lose that strength and reliance on yourself so that Jesus can live his life through us. So then, what happens is this. In order for us to know the victory and reality of the Christian life, means that we must be brought to the end of ourselves only when I cease to rely on myself in a particular area of my life can Jesus then do through me what I cannot do for myself but in order to come to that point circumstances and situations have to bring me to that point 
because we cannot of ourselves just say, right, Lord, this area of my life, that's not going to be me anymore, it's going to be you. Because we're enslaved to our own selves. And so what God does through the Holy Spirit is that he arranges situations. He manipulates our circumstances, very much like Pharaoh oppressed the Jews. And that what happens is that as things get harder and harder and harder, you realise that whereas you could quite happily think you were getting along with it last year, this year it's not possible for you to do it anymore because it's just getting too tough. And we begin to realise that we don't have the strength of ourselves. And our circumstances and situations bring us to the end of ourselves until we end up coming to the Lord knowing that we're finished in that area of our lives because we've tried and we've tried and we've tried but we've failed and we've failed and we've failed and then when you get absolutely to the end when we realize it's no use even trying anymore that is the place of victory when Jesus can begin to take over and in fact as God works in our lives very often as we're going to see it's through the agency of Satan himself that God manipulates our circumstances. Pharaoh is a picture in the Bible of the devil, not of the Lord, he's a picture of the devil. And that God will even use satanic attacks against us and Satan doing everything he can to screw up our Christian lives. God even uses that to bring us to the end of ourselves so that there we can have the victory of Jesus coming through us. Now, so the first thing is this, that when we go through a tribulation experience in whatever form, the design is always to drive us to Jesus closer and closer, whereas without that suffering or tribulation, we will be relying on ourselves. And throughout everything that I'm going to say, you'll see that this is the foundation of it. The Christian life is not what we do for Jesus. The Christian life is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And when we accept that and believe, the continuing Christian life or discipleship is then what Jesus continues to do through us in our place. Jesus doing for us and through us what we cannot do for ourselves. But as long as we are doing it, Jesus won't do it because he honours our free will. Therefore, circumstances are engineered, oppression and tribulation is allowed to bring us to the end of our strength, to show us that it isn't as much as we thought it was, and to bring us closer and closer to Jesus in that place of failure and dependence upon God. Let's move on to another one. Turn with me to Romans 5. And Paul writes this. He's talking here about the fact that because Jesus has died, we can have peace with God and be saved. And he's saying, we rejoice in that fact that we're saved. But listen to this. He says, but more than that, the rejoicing in the Christian life doesn't end with getting saved. He says, but more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. What an incredible thing to say we rejoice in our sufferings, our tribulation, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, 
and character produces hope and hope does not let us down because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us now then the moment we believed in Jesus we were saved from the penalty of sin the second that you become a Christian the penalty of sin which is death and eternal separation from God in the lake of fire the minute we believe on Jesus that penalty is no longer coming our way we have been saved from the penalty of sin but salvation does not stop there Jesus came to do far more than simply save us from the penalty of sin because he came to save us from the power of sin in our lives so that once you get <coughs> saved you will never go to the lake of fire that issue is settled once and for all and immediately another issue comes into play the penalty of sin will never touch us but the power of sin is shot through us and as soon as we get saved Jesus goes on to make us disciples to sanctify us to give it the biblical word and to deliver us from the power that sin has over our lives so in fact the task that Jesus has set himself in those of us who are his people is this he has come to make sinful men and women into holy men and women Jesus takes our worldly characters and natures and then seeks to turn us into godly characters and natures now that is sanctification Jesus delivering us from the power of sin and there are two aspects to this work that he does in us and it's a continuous work it begins the day you get saved and it won't end until the day you either die or the Lord comes back a continuous work and the two aspects are this first the Holy Spirit works in us to bring sin out this is our problem we're full of sin we are sinners it's our very nature and the Holy Spirit works firstly to bring sin out and then having done that to bring Jesus out one of the pictures in the Bible is the crucible refining gold or silver and you see Jesus has come to live inside of us we are one with Jesus there is silver in us there's a very precious something in us and it's called Jesus and the refiner what he does is that he's got this lump that's you and me and a certain amount of this lump is pure silver Jesus but the rest of it is dross and impurity that's our sinful nature and the refiner is seeking to get rid of the dross and to be left with pure silver or pure gold now how he does this is to throw it into a crucible and to heat it up bubble it away and what happens is that under the pressure of being melted all the grunge all the muck comes to the surface and can then be skimmed off leaving only the pure silver now this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life through oppression he bubbles us up and it's when the pressure is on that our true characters come out all of us are wonderful people when everything's going our way I'm terrific but it's a different story when I'm finding everything going wrong it's a different story when I find out that God has crossed me on something that I was absolutely determined he ought to do can you see that it's one thing to be marvelous when God answers your prayers 
but when you don't get your own way or when God brings across your path the very last person you ever wanted to meet or to be close to that is when our true characters come out and we're bowled up and it brings the sin out the dross floats up to the center and with increasingly more dross gone then Jesus can be released in our lives because the impurity of our sin is no longer standing in his way now I want to give you two examples of this one from the Bible and one from nature because God who wrote the Bible also created the universe and that everything in the scriptures you will find somewhere reflected however dimly in nature and the first example is Peter now we can all identify with Peter to one extent or another because Peter was a man who realized who Jesus was Peter realized that Jesus was the Son of God and realized that he was a sinner and needed Jesus. But having got saved, Peter was one of these people who had a plan of what he was going to do for God. And that what happened was that at a particular time Jesus is going around moving amongst the Jews and the Pharisees and Peter realizes that if Jesus carries on like this he's going to get killed because he was rocking too many boats and that Peter says Lord I will die for you now Peter meant that from the bottom of his heart that was a genuine response of what the Holy Spirit had done in him he wanted to die for Jesus but one of the things we discover when we get converted is that wanting to do something is one thing being able to do it is quite another thing and that what Jesus turns around and tells him he says Peter he says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Now, in those days, they sifted wheat with a threshing sledge. And that Jesus says, look, Satan has asked my Father in heaven to be able to thrash you around to try and destroy your faith. And he's saying, Peter, more than that, we've <laughs> said yes. We've given Satan permission to sift you like wheat to beat you about until all the chaff has flown away so that only the good stuff, i.e. the power of the Spirit, is left. And so what happens is that Satan is then allowed to manipulate Peter's life. And not too long after he made this grand proclamation, Lord, I will die for you, Satan is allowed to manipulate things in such a way that before he realises it, Peter has got a chance to do the very thing he said he was willing to do. He had a chance to admit that he knew Jesus after Jesus had been arrested and to be crucified with him. And what did Peter do? He denied him three times, once with oaths and cursings. Not a pretty sound. Not from a Christian. But what happened after that is that as Jesus was being led away to trial, Peter catches his eye and he was so broken he was so overcome by his failure that we read he went out and wept bitterly now sometimes people think what was the secret of the ministry that Peter had was it just that he was baptized with the spirit and the answer to that is no the reason why Peter could become such a powerful channel for the Holy Spirit in his life is that as a result of this failure 
He denied Jesus when all he wanted to do was support him and be with him. Yet he discovered that whereas he wanted to do what was right, when given the opportunity, all that came out of him was sin, rebellion and selfishness. And yet as a result of that, he was so ashamed that he was then a broken man before God. He realised from that moment onwards the truth about himself. He realised how ridiculous it was that he ever had dreams of doing anything for Jesus. And he realised that all he had in himself, of himself, was sin and failure and rebellion against God. And it was the failure in Peter's life that prepared him so that when the Holy Spirit came upon him, when he was baptised in the Spirit, Peter, as a man relying on himself, was now dead. He was a broken man. And therefore Jesus could do through him what Peter no longer believed he could do for himself. Result, he no longer trusted in Peter. He trusted in Jesus. And Jesus did it through him. We tend to say of situations and people that this will make or break them. In the kingdom of God it's different. God makes us by breaking us. That is the secret of the Christian life. That is, if you like, the plan for success. Do you want to be a successful Christian? I'll tell you how. Realise the utter failure of your discipleship. And in that brokenness, then Jesus begins to live through us, which is what he intended all along. I want to give you a picture from nature and talk about a little caterpillar picture with me a little caterpillar now when a caterpillar gets born or however they enter the world I don't know but when a caterpillar appears he has a feeling inside of him that he was created to fly and he can't get away from it a caterpillar has a final destiny to be flying and this caterpillar doesn't understand much but he does understand this urge inside of him he seems to spend all his life walking along the ground. But he has a feeling that he was created for something more than that. He ought to be flying. And it comes to the point it starts to bug him. And he thinks, I should be flying and I'm always on the ground. And so he starts to try to fly. He starts jumping in the air, but he finds that he, he keeps landing. Maybe he, he sort of zooms up a tree and... and belts along a branch and jumps off and, and starts flapping his legs. But nevertheless he can't fly, boom, down he comes, he lands on the ground. And he can't work out why it is that he knows inside he was created for one thing, flight, and yet he spends his entire life earthbound not being able to experience what he knows he ought to be experiencing. This incredible frustration sets in. Why can't I fulfil my destiny? this little caterpillar feels. Why am I such a failure? Oh, what a dreadful caterpillar I am. I can't fly, and yet I feel I ought to be flying. But then far from things getting better, they get much, much worse, this little caterpillar. Far from improvement, things have yet to go disastrously wrong. Because one day, not only does he have this burden of unfulfilled desire to fly, but one day he finds, quite without warning, that all this yucky, mucky, horrible, sticky stuff starts pouring out from inside of him. 
until he's trapped. And now, not only is his desire to fly unfulfilled, but now all his attempts at flying are now gone because he can't move. He's trapped in this cocoon. And the cocoon that trapped him came from inside of him. And now he's in a real mess. And that he dies to every attempt he ever made to live his life flying in the air. And yet the thing is this, trapped inside that cocoon, our little caterpillar can no longer move. He can't do anything in his own strength now. And because he's trapped, something begins to happen that had he still been moving around and belting about trying to fly, could never have happened. Because once that little caterpillar is trapped so he can't move, something called metamorphosis begins to happen. Because you see, there's a life principle inside a caterpillar that a caterpillar is only very dimly aware of. And in that cocoon, he begins to change. And in fact, what happens is this. He dies to being a little caterpillar. And inside this terrible darkness of the cocoon, he's trapped and can do nothing. But after a, so much time of darkness, one day he finds that inside that cocoon he can start to move. Suddenly he's, he's got a strength and a mobility that he didn't have before. And he's able to break out of that cocoon and he emerges and he looks at himself and he realises that it's still him. He's the same thing that went into the cocoon and yet now he's different. He's died to being a caterpillar and a life force that was inside of him which couldn't come into operation and take over whilst he was doing his own caterpillar thing has now revealed itself and he's changed completely and because he has wings as soon as he emerges from that cocoon he suddenly discovers that he can do something now quite naturally that before no matter how hard he tried he was unable to do he can fly because you see the thing that prevented him from flying was the law of gravity and as long as that little caterpillar was a caterpillar no way could he fly he lived an earth-bound life but once he had changed into a butterfly and become a new creature in that cocoon suddenly because he has wings the law of gravity is still operating universally but because he now has wings he has become subject to a higher law that overrides the law of gravity he has become subject to the law of aerodynamics and in his new life he can now do what before he could only try to do he knew he belonged in the air but there was nothing he could do about it and yet now after this death after this metamorphosis after this rebirth now he can fly and it's natural for him to fly because he has been subject to a higher law that overrides the limitations he had known before and he was free from the law of gravity now that word metamorphosis that we use to describe what happens when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly in the Greek is metamorphon and it's exactly the same word that is used when Jesus was transfigured you'll remember when Peter James and John went up a mountain with Jesus and suddenly the Bible says he was changed or he was transfigured and they saw him in all his glory 
They saw him now, not merely in the limitations of being a man, but they saw him in all the glory of the God who he was. And that word transfigured is metamorphoon. Jesus was changed in front of them. But also this word is used in the Bible about us. Romans 12.2 says this, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that word transformed is metamorphoon in the Greek. I could read it like this, Be not conformed to this world, but be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind, just like that caterpillar. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding, and that word means reflecting as in a glass, reflecting as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And that word changed is metamorphone. And Paul says, look, as we reflect the glory of Jesus, as we look to Jesus and Jesus only, which means you no longer look to yourself. It's as we look to Jesus and Jesus only that we are metamorphosed and the life principle of Jesus inside of us can take over because we are not trying to do it ourselves. Now in Romans chapter 6, 7 and 8 you have a picture exactly of this. In Romans 6, Paul goes through all the principles that when you came to Christ, the truth of the matter is that you were incorporated into him. When you believed, you believed in Jesus. And in the Greek, the specific meaning of that word in, and when it talks about believing, is this. When we talk in the Bible about putting your trust in Jesus, or he who <coughs> believes shall be saved, the Greek means believing yourself into. When I was a kid, I used to love trains used to love being on underground trains and sometimes mum would walk us round to the corner to the shops and there was a station right by the shops and if I saw a train coming along if I was in running distance I'd wait until the doors opened and I'd pull my hand out of mum's I was only about five four or five years old and I'd belt along to the station and I'd run through the the ticket barrier and I'd jump on the train and the doors are shut and I'd be off to Chigwell now can you see, I love trains, and because I love them, because I wanted trains, can you see, I believed myself into the trains. Now that is exactly what faith in Jesus is. When you believed, when you were saved, you were literally put into Jesus, which means that his experience, past, present and future, has now become yours, because you are incorporated into Jesus' life in every possible way. And Paul is saying this, in Romans 6, he says, look, we're Christians. And the truth of the matter is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to the power of sin. Jesus died to sin once and for all. Therefore, if we are Christians, and if we are incorporated into Jesus, we too have died to sin. And he says that sin no longer has any power over us. And in Romans 6, he sets the theory. But then in Romans 7, he talks about an experience he went through when he was years and years of being a Christian. And he says that with my mind I know what is right, he says, but I can't do it. And he says every time I try to do what I know is right, I always end up doing the evil. And Paul says, wretched man that I am. And he says, who will deliver me from the body of death? 
But then, by the time he gets into Romans 8, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And he says, there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who live by the law of the Spirit. Now, what is happening is this. Paul there is speaking of an experience where he found himself, like that caterpillar, He's been converted and he knows that he belongs in the air. He belongs in what is called the law of the spirit that sets you free from sin. And yet his experience practically is that however much he wanted to fly for the Lord and be free of sin, his experience that he was always kept under by the power of sin. The law of gravity, why the caterpillar can't fly. And he could not live the Christian life no matter how much he tried. And this experience of all this sin came out of him. And Paul, rather finding that he was doing well in following the Lord, he finds that he's failing the Lord. That rather than holiness and love coming out of him, all manner of sin is coming out of him. And this happens until you find that your, sometimes your whole Christian witness has been absolutely demobilised because you're acting in such a sinful, failing way that you hardly feel, how can I call myself a Christian? And yet the point is that that cocoon which came out of the caterpillar, that sin that came out, if you like, traps you. And when you're no longer trying to do it yourself, you realise that a life principle inside of you, the life of Jesus, can now begin to flow and operate and take over because you are dead of all the struggles. And you find that you emerge. And the law of sin is still working. The law of gravity is still there. There's still sin in the world. There's still sin in your nature. But when Jesus takes over, you are now subject to a higher law, the law of aerodynamics. And that even though sin is present, there can be freedom from its power. Because having been brought to the end of ourselves utterly and completely, that is where Jesus can begin to live his life through us in our place. Sometimes people talk about Christianity and they say, I've become a Christian and it's changed my life. That's quite right, but it doesn't go far enough. Because Christianity is so much more than a changed life. It's an ex-changed life. It's when we say, Jesus, bring me to the end of my life. Bring me to share your death so that you can live through me in your holiness. The only holiness we are ever going to get is Jesus' flowing out of us. But first, like that little caterpillar, we must be removed. We must be trapped. We must be brought into death so that Jesus' life can take over in us. And then we find that what we couldn't do before, no matter how hard we tried, is now beginning to happen very, very easily, very, very naturally. Because you see, we've got our wings. We're not earthbound, because now it's Jesus doing it through us, and we find the change is coming very, very naturally in an unforced way. And this is what Paul is talking about here, that the sufferings, the tribulation we go through, produces character. And it talks here about endurance. Now endurance is something that takes time. When Paul says that the Holy Spirit is producing character through the tribulation, it presupposes this period of time. It's a gradual process, not instantaneous. 
And I've often said it before, that no sooner has one part of your life been brought to death and Jesus has taken over and you have victory than the Holy Spirit shows you another area of your life where it's yet to happen. There's never any room for complacency. But bit by bit, as Paul says, we're being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Remember, it took God a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. Israel, a picture of God's people, Egypt, a picture of the church, uh, sorry, a picture of the world. And it took God a few days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. In fact, the truth of the matter is he never died. The entire generation of Jews who came out of Egypt all died in the wilderness. You see, because the only way forward to victory is through death. And in Philippians 3.10, Paul says, he says, that I might share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so again we see the tribulations, the oppression, the bad times, the difficult times that we go through, bringing us to the end of relying on ourselves until we find the law of the Spirit, i.e. the life of Jesus, our wings, taking over so that the law of gravity, the law of sin, it's still there, but we're now subject to a higher law, what the Bible calls the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul goes on and gives another reason why it is we go through the tribulation. Just read these verses to you. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now to illustrate what that means, Ezekiel was a prophet who was from God and he had a very, very tough message to speak to a particular group of people and they were Jews and they were exiles. They were people who had been cast out of their own land and Ezekiel was going to them to tell them why it was that they were cast out of their land and why God was judging them in the way that he was. Now listen to what he says. I came to the exiles at Tel Abib who dwelt by the river Kibar and I sat where they sat overwhelmed among them seven days. Now Ezekiel had a word from God for these people but he didn't open his mouth for a week and what he waited for was literally until he was standing in their shoes. He sat where they sat, overwhelmed among them. He would not bring God's word to them until he knew that he was sharing their pain with them. And of Jesus we're told this, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weakness, but one who has been tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sinning. You see, the thing is this, that tribulation develops a humility and a softness that without it we wouldn't have. You see, we can only give comfort to other people in their problems to the extent that we have received the comfort of God in our problems. Which means that we've got to identify 
with people in their problems. It is always so easy to be going in with your boots on, in a kind of a holier-than-thou attitude, as if somehow we are immune from the problems that are defeating them. And as we go through tribulation, we develop this humility towards others because we find that when we're presented with people with problems, maybe Christians who are not living their Christian lives very well, we are able to be sympathetic and helpful because we can look back on our lives and know that we screwed up more than they ever did. But can you see it's only the difficulties and the suffering that will break that pride in us? The story of Job in the Bible, in Job's comforts, is very famous. Job, he was being afflicted, not by God because he was being sinful, but he was being tested by the devil because he was so righteous. And everything went wrong for poor old Job in the Bible. He was in a terrible state. Everything that was dear to him, he lost. And he was ill. It was awful. And his three friends, Job's comforters, came to him. And they were no good at all. In fact, they made his plight worse. Mm -hmm. Because we see in those three men that they were more interested in their doctrine than they were in Job's sufferings. And in fact, in the book of Job, if you read, their doctrine is wrong as well. But the point is, that aside, these men were not able to support and to comfort Job because all they were interested in doing was to get their doctrinal points across. And they were useless. Let's go back to Peter. That's right, the Lord says to Peter, Look, Peter, far from you being able to lay down your life for me, you're going to fail me. You're going to deny me three times. You're going to wreck your Christian life because you just haven't got it in you to live it. And you've got to realise that. And he says, Peter, you are going to come to utter failure and degradation because you are going to see yourself for what you really are, a sinner and a sinner only. We need to realise that when we get saved, we don't improve one whit. We're as sinful as we ever were. And it takes following the Lord for 15 years before you really begin to appreciate the depths of our sinfulness. Something that the Lord reveals bit by bit. But listen to what Jesus said to Peter. He says, but after that, Peter, he says, when you've failed, he says, when you have turned again, I, when you've turned round, when you've repented of your failure, he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And it was interesting. What made Peter a leader of God's people was his failure. His absolute failure. If Peter hadn't have been through this experience, he would have been a very hard leader. If you'd have gone to Peter with a problem and you weren't doing very well in following the Lord, he'd want to know why. Can you see what I mean? And yet now, he is a failure. And because he is a failure, he can help other failures. And failures are all we're ever going to be. Therefore, the kind of leaders that we need are men who realise their failure as well. And that the key to success in the Christian life is our own failure. And this softness develops. You are able to comfort people in a genuine way because they know that you are standing with them as someone who's just as bad, screwed up just as badly as they have, rather than coming in with a heavy hand, you've got to repent of this, you've got to put that right, you've got to pull your socks up. C.S. Lewis said a very marvellous thing. He said, true friendship begins when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. Mm -hmm. 
Now that is comfort. That is what Jesus means by receiving comfort from God and us passing on to other people. Let me very quickly just give you a list of the various meanings of the Greek and the Hebrew words in the Old, in the Old and New Testament that are all translated comfort. Especially the Greek language is so much better than ours, it's more precise. I mean, our, our language is clumsy. All these words are translated comfort in English, but they mean something different. Paragoria, it means soothing in the Greek. It means to ease the pain. And when people are in trouble, we need to step in to ease the pain, to soothe them. Upsuchio, this means to brace up. It means to support. It means to refresh. It means that there's someone there, if you like, and they're in the scorching heat of God's boiling pot. They're bubbling up and they're sweating and it's tough. And we can just bring them refreshment, the cool breeze of the Holy Spirit's love, to cool it down just a little bit, to reassure them and to love them. Paramathia means consolation. And consolation is a word we don't understand. We all use it. We say, I, you know, I need to be consoled. But we don't really know what it means. Consolation, another associated word, is console. You have a console on a, a mic mixer in a recording studio. And you've got all your gubbins, you've got all the guts of it, all the wires and, and the levers and, and the knobs. But the console is the bit that holds it all together. So that when the Bible talks about comfort in the sense of consolation, it's saying be a framework to hold someone together. Because I'll tell you, there are times when your Christian life is falling apart. And you can't go on on your own. You, maybe you feel you can't believe anymore. And it's then that the comfort of other Christians, they can come in. They say, right, we're going to be your framework. We're not going to let you fall to bits, but you don't have to do anything because we're going to do it for you. And we're going to hold you up and make sure you don't fall to bits. Paramatheomai means to speak to someone kindly. Again, comfort. But the words in this par in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians that we've read here are even more interesting because the word is paraclesis. And it means to draw alongside. Now, you'll remember when Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit and says, I will send you another comforter. And he calls the Holy Spirit a comforter. And that word is parakletos. It's the same word, paraklesis, in a different form. And the Holy Spirit as our comforter is literally the one who draws alongside of us. The actual technical meaning in Greek is your defence lawyer. Someone who stands with you in court to help you out and to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And also, in the epistle of John, he says that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. And it's the same word as comforter. It's parakletos. So we have Jesus, who has drawn alongside us as our defence lawyer, and we have the Holy Spirit, who has drawn alongside us as our defence lawyer. Our Father is the judge in heaven, and he's fixed the court so he can never be found guilty. And can you see, we're laughing all the way to heaven. The comfort that God has for us. And we need to be passing this on to other people. It means that we need to dare to get involved with one another. It means we dare to get relationships that are meaningful. So through the tribulation we go through, we can pass on the blessing that we ourselves have received when we have gone through those really hard and tough times. 
Perhaps I could just share something of our own testimony, you know, because I mean, <laughs> Belinda and I live out what we preach, believe me. And especially recently, we, we've lived out this, this message all over again. I mean, ever since the Lord called me to preach, there has always been opposition. I mean, you've only got to open your Bible and find that anyone who's moving on in the Lord is going to be opposed, left, right and centre. But after about eight years, maybe nine years of being in ministry, living by faith and, and not having an easy time, but, you know, the ministry surviving, things began to happen which we really found it hard to believe. We found a movement amongst Christians who we knew against us so intense that harassment became to be unbearable, didn't it, Robert? It was unbelievable what was happening. The kind of lies that were being told against us. And we found so many people who up to that point had been with us in ministry. They had been supporting us as well. They were praying for us and suddenly they didn't want to know. Their own support went with their financial support as well. They'd heard what were a pack of lies about us. And yet people didn't stop to try and find out the truth at all. And suddenly we were finding ourselves more and more outcast. It was amazing. Everything that the Lord was saying to us seemed to be falling to bits. The exact opposite was happening. And then once we came down here and Robert had a word from the Lord for us. He had a vision. And in this vision he had foreseen that even though we've been under really bad satanic attack, he said something is now coming from the devil and this is really going to be big. He says this is going to be the worst satanic attack you've ever had and the Lord showed him this in the form of a vision. It was like a bed of nails that Blinder and I were lying on, all the nails coming up from underneath from the pit and Satan making life very uncomfortable. And the vision that Robert had was that there was Belinda and I lying on this bed of nails and suddenly, wham, up through the bed came this massive nail. Right through the bed. This was a real lulu, a really big satanic attack. And Robert said, this is coming, this is from the Lord. And we said, oh gee whiz, thanks, we're really looking forward to it. <laughs> but within a few weeks, even our own fellowship in Suffolk were no longer able to support us in any way at all, having heard so many lies about us that they started to believe those very lies themselves. The result of that was that a ministry that was being blessed by God well, still is in that sense. We were literally driven out. We were driven out of our home. We were driven out of our church. We were driven out of our ministry. Ended up in Swatham on the dawn. And in times like that, the exact opposite to what you believe God is going to do is happening. And you think, what on earth is going on? You feel very much like Job, a man who was righteous before the Lord. And before he knows it, his family has died, he's lost all his money, and he's inflicted with terrible illness. And the great struggle, was he going to sort of stop believing in God? Or was he going to trust no matter what happened? And Job said a wonderful thing. And it's the zenith of the Christian life. And if there's one thing I want more than anything else, I want to be able to say this with Job and mean it. Because Job said of the Lord, he said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's faith. That's a sign of a man maturing in the Lord. A man who can go through tribulation that wrecks his every li his, his life, his vision, 
seemingly every promise that God has made to him going wrong as if the Lord's doling out the opposite of what he promised tribulation and yet still to be following the Lord and though Belinda and I don't handle this very well I think we can say that we've been blessed through it we know that God's going to sort it out it's but for a season he's going to restore the ministry that's not the problem but it's living through it living through as much as anything the injustice of other men in the ministry who told lies about us and yet we see them prospering whilst we pay the price for what they did and yet in a very deep way I know for myself that I'm at a place where I can leave that kind of thing with the Lord without having to fight for myself without being insecure so that I've got to let everyone know that I'm right to be secure in Jesus and in a way that you can't really explain unless you go through it in tribulation you find a oneness a closeness with Jesus that you couldn't have had if you hadn't have been through that tribulation and you realise that faith in God means that you believe God in the dark or you don't believe in him at all faith when everything is going right is not worth very much at all it's when everything is going wrong when you say well my goodness it looks like God has got it in for me but God has said in his word I know my thoughts towards you saith the Lord thoughts of good and not evil Amen. this is how we grow in faith now in winding up I've got to move on to this and talk about our reaction therefore to the tribulation that we go through we've seen that Jesus has promised us that we're going to have in one way or the other there are going to be tough times and we've seen why it is to bring us closer and closer to him to bring us to victory and yet what we now need to do is to look at our reaction to this tribulation as we go through it because Paul wrote to Timothy and he said this he said take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus take your share of suffering God allots to each one of us a share of suffering we have to bear ours Belinda and I you have to bear yours but it's how we bear it that counts because you see this tribulation that the Lord puts us through is only going to work for our benefit if we receive it and live through it with the right attitude I want to demonstrate this to you very powerfully but when you understand the reasons why we go through tribulation you can begin to understand why the Bible says rejoice in it you realize it's for our own good and Jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free and it's when you realize that your problems are your friends sent from God that you can begin to react to them as friends but if you don't understand why the problems are there you can't you tend to fight them but when you know what's happening and understand it it sets you free so what we've got to look at now we've seen about how in tribulation we can comfort others but what I want to look at now is that when we are going through that really tough time how do we comfort ourselves how are we going to react to what happens now in Psalm 119 David talks about this about comfort and comforting himself <clears throat> and he uses a Hebrew word which is nakan and though it gets translated comfort in the English versions in actual fact the Hebrew word means to give vent to your size it means to let out what you're really feeling inside now we're going to see 
that you can let it out in a right way or you can let it out in a wrong way. Now I'm going to read something from one of the Psalms that David wrote but let me explain something very quickly about King David. When David was a young lad, Israel was being led by a king, King Saul. And although King Saul was a believer, he decided that he didn't want to follow God, he wanted to do his own thing. And King Saul was leading Israel astray. And God said, right, Saul, I'm finished with you, alright, you're still coming to heaven, but I can't use you on earth anymore. And I'm going to replace you with little David. And so the prophet that God sent went to David, anointed him with oil, which was the equivalent of laying hands on someone in New Testament times, and says, you are going to be the king of Israel. God has chosen you. Now here's little David who knows that God has called him to be king. And he's probably jumping about, claiming the promise of God, really excited. Do you know what happened for about the next ten years or so? King Saul so persecuted David that he was made an exile from his own people. And he ended up living with a group of would-be bandits in a cave because there was nowhere else to go. So King David knew what God had called him to do, but the first thing that happened was the exact opposite. Rather than becoming king, like God said, for years and years he was a hunted man until eventually he was forced out of Israel altogether. Because so many people hated him, he was in danger of his life all the time that he was there. Now in that context, listen to this. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction that thy promise gives me life. Now he says, this is my comfort. Now that word there is nekama, it means consolation. He says, Lord, I'm going through really bad times. He says, I'm being afflicted. But he says, this is what is preventing me from falling apart. Okay? And it's, thy promise gives me life. And he says, when I think of thy ordinances from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. And that's nekama. And he's saying here, Lord, I'm going through a dreadful time. It seems that none of your promises are coming true. All I'm getting is hassle. All I'm getting is people fighting against me and I haven't done anything wrong. But he says, the thing that's preventing me from falling to bits is that you, God, have said that I'm going to be king. I have your promise and that's what counts. And he says, but Lord, when I think back from old, when I look back on everything you've done for our people, and yet when I look at what you're doing to me now, he says, Lord, I have to give vent to it. I have to let it out to you. I have to burst into tears and, Lord, deliver all my bitterness up to you and just get what I'm feeling inside, the hurt and the pain, out to you. But the important thing to realise is this. David here was comforting himself by giving vent to sighs and letting it out to his father knowing that God's promise holds true. Now that is how you go through tribulation without becoming bitter. You give vent to sighs, you let it out to the Lord. But listen to this. Esau hated Jacob. And Rebekah said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. And there's the word Nakam again. Can you see it? In terrible tribulation, King David lifted it all up to the Lord. He cried it out to God. But Esau, what he decided to do was to take it out on Jacob and kill him. Now can you see what I mean? As we go through this tribulation, it's up to us what we do with it. We can either go through it 
and the tears of it, handing them up to the Lord and staying close to Him. Or we can let it turn to bitterness. We can let it turn to hatred. We can let it turn to cynicism. And we'll find that rather than the chastening hand of the Lord doing us good, in actual fact we're becoming more and more rebellious. And it's for us to decide. When the tough time comes along, it's for us to decide whether we're going to go with Jesus or whether we're going to rebel and feel sorry for ourselves and things like that. We've got to learn to vent, give vent to ourselves <coughs> and to hand them up to God. And isn't it interesting that in Romans, Paul says the Holy Spirit prays through us with sighs too deep for words. And it's a picture that when we're going through a terrible time, one of the things that the Holy Spirit can do, he can take the hurt and the pain and the disappointment very deep inside of us and he can cry it out if you like for us and hence we can be having continuous deliverance from experiences that for someone in the world would make them twisted and bitter but it's up to us one other word, balag again in the Old Testament it's translated comfort and it means to brighten up it means to encourage now then, I've told you about Job's comforters Here's Job suffering, not because he was out of God's will, but because he was in God's will. And his three religious friends come along, and all they do is they try and find out what sins it is that God is punishing in him. And it was no good at all. And it's this word that Job uses as he, he sort of faces the onslaught of these men. They should have been comforters, but they ended up condemning him. And he said, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. He says, look, my situation is depressing enough. I don't need you lot. He says, but I've got you. I can't get rid of them. They just sat there and kept talking to him. He couldn't get rid of them. And he says, right, I'm going to leave off my heaviness. He says, I'm going to stop feeling sorry for myself and I'm going to comfort myself. I'm going to encourage myself. I'm going to brighten myself up. Why? Because we have God's promise. In everything, God works together for good to them that love God. And we've got to lay hold of that, and that can brighten us up, and hence the difficulties that we go through are therefore free to do their work in us. But eventually Job could take no more, and he said, let me alone that I might take comfort a little. He says, look, I haven't got a chance of cheering myself up with you lot here. He says, look, vanish, go. And he says, when I don't have to listen to you, then I can get a grip of myself. And you see, the sad thing is that very often, we comfort each other like Job's comforters. Can you see it? I mean, sort of sometimes you can be feeling a bit down, you know, and a Christian comes along and they try and encourage you, and by the time they've gone, you feel ten times worse. <laughs> you know, you sort of like someone turns out and said, you know, and you say, oh, I'm really, I'm really going through it. You know, I'm, this, I, I don't know what to do. I'm at the end of myself. And I say, oh yeah, I know what you mean. Is it yeah. And a big moaning session. <laughs> and whereas you needed someone to be your framework, they say, well, move over, I'll fall to bits with you, mate. <laughs> you see? And that very often we are like Job's comforters. And eventually he can't take any more and he says, miserable comforters are you all to them. He says, clear off, I am going to brighten myself up no matter what. Now, if we do that, we will find that the difficulties and the tribulation that we go through will produce in us what I have said they will. You will come closer to Jesus than you could have imagined. You will find that you have a fortitude that no way could you have had before. That when everything goes wrong, 
I mean, there may be the initial, mm, you know, but after a little while, you get that under control. You say, Lord, forgive me for reacting like that. And you find that you can go on thanking the Lord. You can go on saying, well, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to do it. And faith grows and character grows and you become closer and closer to Jesus. But if we rebel against it, it will just make us more and more and more miserable. Therefore, in conclusion, the writer to the Hebrews, he says this, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's talking to a church of Christians who are uh, like this, you know, uh. and he says, look, stand up, he says, strengthen your weak knees, he says, stand, he says, you're one with Jesus, he says, stand in the power and the truth of Jesus, he says, lift your drooping hands, he says, don't have them down there, he says, lift them up to the Lord and give him the glory, lift them up to the Lord and praise him, because no matter what may be happening to us subjectively, the scripture says that all things work together for good, to them that love God and are called according to his purposes. Amen. And if that is true, which it is, can you see that though our tears and our sadness and our pain will be real, nevertheless we will always have that brightness inside of us which is looking to the Lord and saying, the Lord knows what he's doing, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And we must repent of our wrong attitudes it is up to us. I tell you this much, when we go through this experience of the really tough times when God is doing a work in us, if we want we can rebel against it and moan and grumble and be rebellious. The Lord will still love us, we haven't stopped being his children if we do that. But I'll tell you, your life will get more and more and more miserable. But if you turn to the Lord in it, in faith and praise, you'll find that what you learn through those rough times and when you come out of the rough times you look back and no matter how hard it was I mean I find myself looking back at things that have happened which were, were terrible things that happened I mean you know the sort of thing oh the last thing you want and yet I can look back and I say Lord thank you for that and I can actually be glad that I went through it because of what I learnt about Jesus that I wouldn't have learnt if everything had been hunky-dory. Can you see that? I know so much more about Jesus because of the difficulties than I do had I had an easy life. Therefore, again as Paul said to Timothy, he said, take your share of suffering as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. Following the Lord is tough because God is doing a tough work in us. He is not happy to simply have us saved from the penalty of sin. He wants to deliver us from the power of sin because he knows finally there's only one thing that makes us unhappy and it's sin. Therefore Jesus is prepared to be tough with us, to work in us, to set us free from the power of it. And you find that that leads not to a sad life but to a happy life, a joyful life. But it's up to us how we react to it. It's not easy. Following the Lord is tough. But it's glorious and it's wonderful. And I know from my own experience, it's the way I've met the Lord again and again and again in fresh ways in the middle of absolute spiritual darkness. That is where my growth has happened. With some plants, if you want them to grow, if you bung them in a dark cover for the first few days, they grow much quicker than if you leave them in the light. And the thing with us is that we tend of ourselves to be negative. 
don't we? Now God wants us to be positive. Now where do you develop your negatives into positives? You do it in the dark room. And God sends us through spiritual problems because it develops us. Brings us closer and closer to him. And that is where we find our oneness with Jesus. In a way that an easy life, a cushy Christian life, couldn't possibly be. Remember, when you find a soldier at war who says, I'm having a great time, it really makes you wonder if he's doing his duty, doesn't it? I mean, what soldier in a battle only has a great time? And we are called as God's people to spiritual warfare. We have an enemy. And if we're going to grow, we're going to grow as much as anything through difficulties, through suffering, through tribulation. So let us receive it with joy because we'll come closer and closer to Jesus as a result of it.